The first one, uh, which we shall start around 7.30 a.m., is about Al-Mawasi, which is the humanitarian zone um, uh, earmarked by the Israeli government in Gaza. We will look um, at uh, the details of that zone, how humanitarian that zone is, and how practical uh, that zone is to house about 2 million people. And then uh, from about 8.15 a.m. onwards, we shall talk about uh, the importance of family time and the time for giving in um, this festive season. So those are the two topics of the day. Please do join us in both of these discussions by calling us at 0208-687-7878. In terms of the headlines appearing in the newspapers today, so the Guardian's main headline Today is the 70 people uh, killed in an Israeli strike on a refugee camp in central Gaza. This according to the health ministry over there. Palestinian health officials say that uh, the death toll after attack on Marazi camp is likely to rise. Um, so the details according to the Guardian uh, is that um, an, air, an Israeli airstrike on a refugee camp in central Gaza has killed at least 70 people, Palestinian, uh, according to Palestinian health officials. The fatalities at the Merazi camp east of Deir al-Bala included at least 12 women and seven children, according to early hospital figures issued late Sunday night. We were all targeted, said Ahmad Turukmi who lost several family members, including his daughter and grandson. There is no safe place in Gaza. Anyway, he told the Associated Press. The Israeli military said it was reviewing the incident. A spokesman for Israeli Defense Forces said, despite the challenges posed by Hamas terrorists operating within civil civilian areas in Gaza, the IDF is committed to international law, including taking feasible steps to minimize harm to civilians. Hamas issued a statement calling the air strike a, hor- strike a horrific massacre and said it was a new war crime. The camp has suffered previous strikes, including one in November when the health when the Gaza Health Ministry said more than 30 people were killed. The Palestinian Red Crescent published footage of the wounded from the latest strike being transported to hospitals. It said Israeli warplanes war were bombing main roads in central Gaza, hindering the passage of ambulances and emergency vehicles. Medics said a separate Israeli airstrike in Khan Yunus in southern Gaza killed eight Palestinians. Klagi cancelled celebrations in Bethlehem, the Israeli-occupied Palestinian West Bank city, where tradition has it that Jesus was born in a stable 2,000 years ago. Tonight, our hearts are in Bethlehem, where the Prince of Peace is once more rejected by the futile logic of war, by the clash of arms that even today prevents him from finding room in the world, Pope Francis said, presiding at Christmas Eve Mass in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Palestinian children, uh, Palestinian Christians earlier held a Christmas vigil in Bethlehem with candlelit hymns and 
prayers for peace in Gaza instead of the usual celebrations. There was no, no large tree, the usual centerpiece of Bethlehem's Christmas celebrations. Nativity figurines in churches were placed amid rubble and barbed wire in solidarity with the people of Gaza. Since a week-long truce collapsed at the start of the month, fighting has only intensified on the ground, with war spreading from the north of the Gaza Strip to the full length of the densely populated enclave. The Israeli military said 10 of its soldiers have been killed in the past day. After five killed the previous day, its worst two-day losses since early November. This is a difficult morning after a very difficult day for fighting in Gaza. Prime Minister Netanyahu told his cabinet on Sunday the war is exacting a very, hot, very heavy cost from us. However, we have no choice but to continue to fight, he said. In a later video message, he said troops would fight on deeper in, into Gaza until total victory according to him, over Hamas. Israel has been under pressure from its uh, closest ally, the US, to shift its operations into a low-density phase and reduce civilian deaths. There has been widespread anger against Netanyahu's government, which many criticized for failing to protect civilians on 7th October and promoting policies that allowed Hamas to gain strength over the years. Netanyahu has avoided um, accepting responsibility for the military and policy failures. Over time, the public will find it hard to ignore the heavy price paid as well as the suspicion that the aims that were loudly heralded are still far from being attained and that Hamas is showing no signs of capitulating in the near future, wrote Amos Harrell, military affairs commentator of the Haritz newspaper. On Saturday, Israel's military chief of staff said his forces had largely achieved operation control in the north of Gaza and would expand operations further further in the south. But residents say fighting has only intensified in northern districts. Diplomatic efforts mediated by Egypt and Qatar on a new truce to free remaining hostages held by militants in Gaza have yielded little public progress, although Washington described the talks last week as very serious. Islamic Jihad, a smaller militant group allied to Hamas, said a delegation led by its exile leader, Ziad al-Nakhla was in Cairo on Sunday. His arrival followed talks attended by Hamas chief Ismail Haniya in recent days. The militant group has have so far said that they will not discuss any release of hostages unless Israel ends its war in Gaza, while the Israelis say they are willing to discuss only a temporary pause in fighting. The Cairo talks would center on the ways to end Israeli aggression on our people said Islamic Jihad official. The delegation would affirm the group's position that any exchange of uh, of hostages will have to secure the release of all Palestinians jailed in Israel after a ceasefire is achieved. Israeli media reported on Sunday that Egypt had put forward to Hamas a three-stage deal that would take several weeks and ultimately end with the release of all hostages and the cessation of hostilities and the withdrawal of Israeli troops. From Gaza, in an initial phase, Hamas would release women, children, the sick and elderly in exchange for Palestinian prisoners, Haris newspaper reported. In the second phase, Hamas would release female female soldiers and two sides would exchange bodies. In the third phase, Hamas would release all remaining hostages and cease hostilities against Israel while Israeli forces would withdraw from Gaza. On the surface, the plan appears to be formula that both parties would be pleased to reject, according to Horitz newspaper. 
Israel has ruled out a ceasefire until it has eliminated Hamas. And Hamas has said it will not consider a hostage deal until Israel agrees to end hostilities. Hamas and Islamic Jihad, both sworn to Israel's destruction, are still believed to be holding more than 100 hostages from among 240 they captured during their 7 October rampage through Israeli towns. Since then, Israel has besieged the Gaza Strip and laid much of it to waste, with more than 20,000 people confirmed killed, according to authorities in Hamas-ruled Gaza, and, and thousands more are believed dead under the rubble. Tens of thousands more have been wounded. The vast majority of the 2.3 million Gazans have also been driven from their homes, and the United Nations says the conditions are catastrophic. So that was um, a story that uh, that's carried by The Guardian uh, this morning. Another story um, uh, this, uh, which is making the headlines in uh, uh, The Guardian this morning is about uh, Russia and Ukraine. And um, according to The Guardian, Russian shelling in southern Ukraine's Kherson region has killed five people, including an 87-year-old man and his 81-year-old wife, who died after a strike on their apartment building. The barrage on Sunday injured nine other people, including a 15-year-old, sparked fires in homes and at a private medical facility, and set a local gas pipeline alight, the head of the regional military administration said. There are no holidays for the enemy, the head of the Ukrainian presence office wrote on social media. They do not exist for us as long as the enemy kills our people and remains on our land. The shelling across Kherson reached the center of the region's capital city of the same name. Russian forces abandoned the city on uh, the Dnipro River in southern Ukraine and the west bank of the river over a year ago, but have since subjected many um, areas there to constant shelling from their positions on the eastern bank. Regional police said three people, including the elderly couple, died in shelling of an apartment building and a private home in Kherson city. A woman died in a drone attack in a small town south of Kherson, and second woman was killed when a town further north came under heavy fire. Some 600 kilometers northwest of Kherson, in the town of Horlivka, an area of Ukraine's Donetsk region under, under Russian control, Ukraine's shelling destroyed a shopping center and several other buildings, this according to Russian installed officials over there. The attacks killed one woman and wounded six of, six civilians. The Russian installed mayor of Horlivka, Ivan Prikhdolo, said on the Telegram messaging app, neither the Russian nor the Ukrainian reports could be independently verified. The assault took place as Ukraine prepared to officially celebrate Christmas for the first time on 25th December in a symbolic shift away from Russian Orthodox Church, which observes the birth of Christ on the 7th of January. So uh, those are the um, headlines appearing in um, uh, the Guardian newspapers today. Uh, newspaper today. We shall now take a very quick break, and when we come back, we will stay with the news. Other news items appearing in the newspapers this morning. Do stay tuned. وَلِلَّهِ الْأَسْمَاءُ الْحُسْنَى فَادْعُوهُ بِهَا يَا <تصفيق> 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 
Asatar, the concealer. Asatar denotes that being who is hidden and concealed. He likes the act of covering up faults and covers the weaknesses and failings of his servants. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that in the hereafter, sheltering man with his mercy, God will ask man if he did such and such deed. Man will confess that yes, he did. God will say, I covered your fault on that day and I cover your fault again. Such is the nature of the loving God who forgives and covers. However, this certainly does not signify that people should become uncontrolled and have no notion of right and wrong since forgiveness is assured. God covers up a believer in countless covers. However, each time a believer commits a sin, a cover is torn until there remains no cover. Thus, each believer should always strive to be the one who repents, as through repentance, Allah restores the covers. God likes modesty, and He likes to protect His servants from any potential embarrassment. But when and if a man reaches a stage where he is brazen and does not benefit from God's covering of faults, he is then humiliated. God does not protect the shame of those who are incorrigible, and their most concealed and hidden sins are also revealed. Thus, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, taught us to continuously seek God's protection through the following prayer. O oh Allah, cover my nakedness and alter my fears into peace. O oh Allah, protect me from the dangers that are ahead of me and those that are behind me and those that are to my right and those that are to my left and those that are above me. I come into the refuge of your greatness from the dangers that may seize me from underneath. The promised Messiah, peace be upon him, relates that we should reflect these high morals of Allah and inculcate them within our community. We should live in modesty and cover the faults of our women and brothers. Allah has promised to those who cover the faults of other Muslims that He will cover their faults on the Day of Judgment. Related in a hadith, it is said, a believer who sees the failings of his brother but covers them will be granted entrance to paradise by Allah. God enjoins to live with love and affection. When people's secrets are disclosed, enmity increases. Furthermore, when we expose the faults of others, we spread sin and immodesty in society. In a situation where a person's failings are discovered, while the person has repented for their sins and altered their ways, by publicizing their faults, not only do we expose their faults, 
but we indulge in backbiting. This refrains one from taqwa as well. Thus, in order to save the society from disorder and oneself from hell, covering the faults of others is essential. The Holy Quran says, those who love that immorality should spread among believers will have a painful punishment in this world and the hereafter. And Allah knows, and you know not. People of our community should pray for a brother when they notice any failing in him. It is certainly not the teaching of the Holy Quran to notice a failing and spread it as it is a sin. May Allah enable us to put his teaching in practice and thus always partake in a measure of God's trait of being Sattar. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. We're still talking about the topics uh, or the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. And uh, one of the headlines is that the UK has experienced its warmest Christmas Eve in more than 20 years. Temperatures in Heathrow, southwest London, hit 15.3 centigrades uh, on Sunday, well above the average for this time of the year, making it the warmest 24th December since 1997. Met Office uh, forecast... Um, uh, official said it's been an exceptionally mild couple of days across all of the UK. Temperatures have been well above average for the first time um, uh, in in the year. The, um, the maximum for December being 7 degrees. Temperature today um, has reached 15 degrees centigrade in quite a few locations across the UK. The highest being 15.3 degrees centigrade in two locations, one in Heathrow and one in Berkshire. This is uh, yesterday. And while children across the UK may be dreaming of a white Christmas un unless they find themselves alongside some hardy sheep on high ground in Scotland, they're likely to be disappointed. Most of the UK can instead expect a damp, blowy and unseasonably warm Christmas day with temperatures up to 12 or 13 degrees in the south of England. Forecasters said it was unlikely that the record for the warmest Christmas day on record set in Devon in 1920 when the temperatures reached 15.6 degrees centigrade would be broken. But the temperatures could still be 5 to 6 degrees warmer than normal for this time of the year. According to the Met Office, the temperatures will peak today. There is a slight downward trend in temperatures for Christmas Day, but we're still expecting them to be comfortably above average. We are looking at 13 and 14 degrees centigrade tomorrow. We're probably looking the at uh, we're probably looking at the warmest Christmas Day since 2016, when we actually hit 15.1 degrees centigrade. The warmest 25th December on record was 15.6 degrees, as mentioned earlier, in 1920, while the highest Christmas Eve temperature was 15.5 degrees, set in Aberdeen and Banff in Scotland in 1931. Two separate yellow wind warnings were issued by the Met Office in Scotland and northern and central areas of England for Christmas Eve, saying people should expect travel disruption, damage to buildings and power cuts, while the rest of the country may see showers, a rain warning, is in place for Wales, where there are um, heavy rains uh, for where there have been heavy rains for several days. The weather has not helped 
an already chaotic travel situation in the UK, with the AA warning of lengthy traffic jams and longer journeys. The Severn Bridge in Gloucestershire was closed in both directions on Sunday afternoon due to strong winds. The Humber Bridge in East Yorkshire was also closed to high-sided vehicles. On the railways, weather-related cancellations compounded woes caused by major engineering works at Paddington and King's Cross in London and crew shortages on a number of train operators. From Christmas Eve, Paddington Station is closed for four days, while there will also be no long-distance train services from King's Cross. West Midlands Railways and London Northwestern Railways, Northern and Chiltern Railways all said they were facing crew shortages while the East Crew Main Line and Scott Rail saw disruption on Christmas Eve because of the weather. Links to mainland Europe have also been affected by a storm pier, with strikes in France causing cancellations on the Eurostar. People travelling to visit family and friends to get away from fractious festivities on Christmas on Christmas Eve have been warned to beware of strong winds causing flying debris and power cuts. The weather warnings are due to expire at midnight, but the weather on Christmas Day would remain gusty and damp, according to the Met Office. It only takes one snowflake to fall for it to be declared a white Christmas, he said, but it's not out of the question that we will see a few flakes. And uh, But it's probably going to be at 200 metres elevation, probably in Scotland, and not that many people will be there to see it. For most of the UK, it is still quite a blustery day and quite a breezy one for people who are looking to get out and about. The best time to set out to walk off the excesses of the Christmas day is likely to be Boxing Day, as a ridge of high pressure builds in the UK with bright sunny spells in Scotland and North, with more cloud in the South. If people are looking to get out over the bank holiday, Boxing Day is probably the best day, for it is going to be quite calm, quite nice, and those temperatures will come down a bit, but still be quite mild, according to the Met Office. So that uh, concludes our news segment for this morning a reminder of the two topics that we shall be discussing today so uh, the first topic is about al-mawasi which is the humanitarian zone um, designated by the israeli government uh, for uh, uh, for gaza and uh, we shall start that um, uh, uh, now in a minute's time and uh, the second topic is um, about the importance of family time and the time for giving. And we shall start that at about 8.15 a.m. This is a live show. Uh, so please do uh, call in at 0208-687-7878 should you want to contribute um, and talk about and discuss any of these topics with us. We do like to have an open discussion so please do join us. The number once again is 0208-687-7878. A very quick break. And when we come back, we will delve right into the first topic, which is about the Al-Mawasi humanitarian zone in Gaza. Do stay tuned. Allah, Allah. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. 
Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show where we're about to delve into the first topic which is about the Al-Mawasi humanitarian zone in Gaza. So according to um, a news article appearing in the BBC, an Israeli um, as Israel presses its military offensive across Gaza, the army has been repeatedly advising some two million civilians to move to a humanitarian zone smaller than London's Heathrow Airport. Al-Mawasi is a narrow strip of land by the Mediterranean Sea. It has few buildings and largely consists of sandy dunes and agricultural land. The zone designated as safe by the Israeli Defense Forces is just 3.3 square miles. Reem Abd-Rabu has spent the last few weeks sleeping on the ground and sharing a tent with four other families in the area. She is one of the 1.8 million Palestinians who have been displaced since the war began on the 7th of October after Hamas's attack on Israel. She first travelled to Khan Yunis after fleeing northern Gaza, but after nearby houses were bombed, she said she felt she had to go to a place the Israeli army identified on the map as safe. Reem told the BBC Al-Mawasi was an abandoned place, not a place for human beings. She thought it would be safe from the intense bombardment and fighting. But when she arrived, he found little to no basic services. Water comes once a day and not for the next 10 days, even in the bathrooms. And it's the same thing for electricity, she told the BBC. The IDF has urged civilians to move to Al-Mawasi on at least 15 occasions on social media. The last... Um, uh, only uh, a few days, uh, uh, only a couple of days ago. The first mention of the humanitarian zone was on 18th October when the IDF's Arabic spokesperson posted on X. The IDF orders Gaza residents to move to the humanitarian zone in the area of Al Mawasi, to which international humanitarian aid will be directed if necessary. Another post from 21st October stated. If your life and the lives of those you love are important to you, head south of Wadi Gaza. We advise you to arrive at the humanitarian area in Mawasi according to our instructions. Unquote. Little to no internet connectivity has made it difficult for people to find safe areas in other parts of Gaza. However, even the IDF instructions on Al-Mawasi have changed several times. Civilians say the challenging nature of the area and the changing messaging has made it difficult for them to know exactly where to find safety there too. Each IDF post has been accompanied by a map pinpointing a small area within Al-Mawasi that, Gaza, that Gazans should evacuate to. But different areas in Al-Mawasi have been designated as humanitarian zones by Israel on different dates. On 18th of October, the IDF designated the humanitarian zone marked in purple below um, uh, below the um, Deir al-Balar region in Gaza. But three days later, the IDF declared a different area. Then on the 30th of October, the area changed again and... Um, then in a, a later um, uh, broadcast, it was changed one more time. So there has been uh, a bit of confusion even about the designation of that area as well. Let's now go uh, and speak to our first guest um, uh, on this topic, uh, Mr. Ahmed Bayram, 
who is a media and communications advisor at the Norwegian Refugee Council, where he works closely with 50 Gazans to combat the atrocities of the war in Palestine. He previously worked with Save the Children, where he worked in various projects, such as raising awareness on matters such as child labor, education, and violence. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Good morning, uh, Mr. Behram. Uh, no, really a pleasure to have you um, on um, on this Christmas uh, day. But unfortunately, we uh, we, we don't have um, an upbeat topic to talk about this morning, and uh, the topic is uh, rather gloomy. What are your thoughts, uh, firstly, on um, uh, the designated zone called Al-Bawasi? Um, actually... The, the, we have we have had an issue with designating so-called safe zones since the onset of, of this onslaught in Gaza. Um, the reason being, Israel as an occupier cannot forcibly transfer populations it occupies, whether that is within Gaza or outside Gaza. That is against international law. And that is a great breach, actually, of international law. And this is what the text of the law says. Now, speaking of al-Mawasi, um, for those you know who, who haven't seen it or haven't seen images of it, it's, it's, a, it's a barren land where some of it has been used to, um, for, for cattle to, to graze, for some farmers to... Um, from from some some parts of the land, but the majority of it is just made of vast waves of, of sand and dirt. That actually, with the first train, uh, for a couple of days ago, has turned into a you know a big muddy pool, um, and we have seen images of that. And people there are staying in tents that are so flimsy that you know they will not stand. Definitely will not stand the the harsh winter that we expect. So designating all these areas, and only a couple of days ago, after Mawasi, actually, um, Israel has has asked hundreds of thousands of residents in Khan Yunus, the very area it has asked people to move to, to move further south. So this this you know um, this chessboard game that Israel is 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 carrying out in, in Gaza, moving people around areas from one corner to another, doesn't, first of all, doesn't guarantee their safety, and second, it's, it definitely defies international law. Um, I hear you. If I can, if I can break uh, your answer up into... Um, so we'll come back uh, to discussing Al-Mawasi. In terms of breaking international law when... Uh, when Israel uh, actually announces and requires and instructs people to move from one area to the other. We've seen m- millions of people have been asked to move from the north to south. You said you're absolutely right. Uh, they were asked to move uh, from north to Khan Yunus in the beginning, then they bombed Khan Yunus. Then they were asked to move to Rafa, and the- Rafa was bombed as well. Uh, and now Al-Mawasi, uh, and God knows what's uh, going to happen there as well. So, uh, you know, and us saying over here um, that they're not following international law, but, you know, the reality on the ground 
for Palestinians is very different. The reality is that when they are asked to, or instructed uh, or forced to go somewhere, they have to. Otherwise, um, uh, they're bombed. Uh, yes, of course. I mean, I mean, we would, we all would. I mean, if 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 you were, uh, if you heard, and that if you had the communication, the connectivity to hear that your area is going to be bombed, there's there's nothing you can do but but you know flee for for your life and say try to save your your children's life. I mean, that's of course that's that's what we expect because you know you you never risk you know uh, staying put and to be honest. The people who who stayed put in the north did so because they literally had nowhere to go, and we have seen, you know, and and, and I think there was no one expected the level of, of, of violence and the level of, you know, um, deadly attacks that um, Israel has launched. That people in overcrowded camps in Jabalia in north in northern Gaza, in other there was a camp that was bombed just just yesterday, just last night, with scores killed. I mean, that's what what people have to do, and they have no other choice. However, what they don't know, and what they say, actually, what they tell us, is that they fully, they are fully aware that moving to an area that Israel has designated as safe could also have them killed, because, like you said, Rafah, which is the southernmost city in Gaza and supposed to be, you know, as 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 far as it gets from, from attacks, has been bombed and very close to actually aid lines, aid delivery lines. So we're, we're talking about 12,000 people crammed into a one square um, kilometer. I mean, just imagine, to compare that with Berlin, for example, that's 4,000 people Per, per per square per square kilometer. Hmm. To compare that with Wales, it's probably three hundred people per per one kilometer. Hmm. So 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 to cram all these people and expect them to survive is 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 just unimaginable. And yeah, that's 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 the reality. Some people tell us they have been displaced four, five, six times even in the space of eighty days. In your interview with France 24, you mentioned that uh, it's a forcible transfer rather than evacuation of civilians in the north of Gaza. And that showcases that even the journey to a designated humanitarian zone at the time is quite difficult. So what were the issues faced uh, when people actually fled from north to south um, in the beginning? Uh, um, I mean... I mean, people are being pushed. People are being pushed to, to leave. Uh, we are being pushed to leave. I mean, I have 50, 50 of my colleagues who are displaced and out after trying to provide aid. They, they wake up in the morning. They have to provide some food for their children if they can get hold of a can of dry food or, or beans or, or whatever it is. And then after that, they have to, to go and, and do some, 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 some aid work that, you know, we're not even able to, 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 you know, perform fully, or to deliver, in, in, you know, the, the way we should. When people are being asked from to, to move from north to south, we should we should understand that they are doing this momentarily over a very short notice, 
um, and it, it is communicated to them at a very short notice, which means they have to flee with nothing on them, unless you can manage to carry a blanket or, or a pillow or, or, or a bag of, of clothes. And when they do that, they move to south, where they think that they will be safer. Now, now aid agencies have been have been restricted in the way they perform their job. The Rafah crossing brings aid in, and this aid doesn't even make it past Rafah in, in the majority of, of the cases. And that is because, you know, Rafah is the most overcrowded area now, mm. and people are so desperate that, you know, we see, you know, everyone wants to get hold of the bottle of water. Yeah, we've seen or, those you know, images. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah. Uh, but, but on that uh, point, is aid actually reaching Rafa, are trucks allowed to come inside? Um, they are, in principle, they are, but without getting into this game of, of, of counting how many trucks are making mm. it in mm. or how many trucks have been increased, I mean, that now doesn't really matter. What matters is keeping that Rafa crossing open, mm. is opening the Karam Shalom crossing, you know, sustainably, because what what you know whatever aid we are bringing in is is never enough, so we need we need more of that, and we need to stop counting the trucks and look at people on the ground. Are they actually is it actually making a difference? And the answer so far is no. Mm. Yeah, the um, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres also made the same point that it's actually the logistical challenges um, and the capacity of aid distribution that uh, we should be focusing on rather than just counting the number of trucks. So I, I absolutely yeah. hear what you're uh, what you're trying to say. So uh, in terms of uh, uh, this aid, though, um, so if it's, um, do you think this this new UN uh, Security Council resolution will help matters in terms of distribution of aid? Um, it, it remains to be seen. Um, it's, we can't say it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's not enough, but we can say it's a step in the right direction, but we don't really need a step. Um, you know, people uh, don't need a step. They need a giant stride in the, in the right direction. They need a jump into a ceasefire and that's what, you know, the biggest powers um, in the world cannot, you know, agree to that. I don't know how this is allowed in 2023 and now 2024 to last, you know, the starvation of people, to last for 80 days, starvation of food, of, of water, of connectivity, of technology, while the world, you know, bask in the benefits of AI and and, you know, food waste everywhere and, and, you know, all these, you know, factors. And when you look at the people of Gaza, they have been set back, you know, decades, I would say, centuries, really. I mean, look at, look at the images. The, 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 the entire Gaza Strip has been turned into an open crater, an open air crater. And so that we talk about resolution and we talk about, countries blocking a ceasefire. This is just unconscionable. I mean, you know, in 2023 to allow 10,000, almost 10,000 children to, to be killed, you know, when they have nothing to do with what's happening. And just to say one final thought here, we've always said in the aid community that military option is not an option and it will never solve or settle this, this crisis. And it's always civilians who face, you know, 
and continue to pay the ultimate price. How um, how many aid workers do you currently? You mentioned fifty of your colleagues have been displaced. Um, uh, what is your yeah. current capacity uh, in terms of aid distribution inside Gaza? And also paint us a picture of what it is like to be um, a refugee in Gaza at the moment, in terms of what's available to them. Yeah. Yeah, so, so 50 of my colleagues, like you said, are, are there trying to, you know, do an impossible job, just, just like, the, you know, the rest of the aid community in Gaza right now. It is an impossible job. It is overwhelming. Even by the standards of the Gaza conflict in the past, we were always able, you know, to, uh, you know, assign some, you know, shelters where people can go to and get, you know, receive some aid. Um, or breach people in their homes to repair some, you know, some of the damaged shelters. What we are doing now is, is barely scratching the surface, and I have to say that because, you know, we've had a couple of dozen aid trucks uh, making it into Gaza, bringing in some 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 water, some you know makeshift tents for people to stay in. We, we're giving it, we're giving out some hot meals where we can, shelters in overcrowded shelters. And we've all seen these images of, of people lined up, you know, in their hundreds, waving their empty pots at the big cauldron uh, in the middle. That is hardly enough for a neighborhood. I mean, it's, it's, it's chaos for these workers. And at the same time, to be displaced, you know, some, some people, some of my colleagues are second-generation refugees in Gaza, and we know that, you know, a large majority of the Gaza population are refugees themselves. So now they are displaced refugees, and some of them are twice displaced, some of them five times displaced. They have all they have known in their life is is a life of displacement. One of my colleagues has just paid the, you know, last instalment on 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 his on his home, only for it to be bombed out in in you know on the first week of of these uh, hostilities and, and these Israeli attacks. So I don't want to say that, you know, it's life without hope, but Israel has rendered Gaza a hopeless place and it has rendered Gaza a lifeless place and has rendered Gaza, you know, a place where all you can think about is surviving the night. And I have heard this from my colleagues, you know, waking up in the morning, surviving the past, the, the, you know, surviving last night's bombardment. That is, you know, that is an achievement. And some people say that it's a dream now to, to, to go back to a peaceful Gaza if, you know, if there was such a thing as, as peace in Gaza. What do you think gives Palestinian people so much resilience? We've been talking to a number of people over the last uh, few days and um, quite a few People in the West um, have been really uh, very, very surprised, pleasant, pleasantly surprised, actually, to see the resilience in the Palestinian people. Where do you think that comes from? Um, that's that's a very good question. Actually, I have I have a lot of Palestinian friends. I lived in this region, which, of course, the Palestinian you know communities is. is an integral part of it. I, I'm originally from Lebanon. I lived in Lebanon. I lived in Syria. Uh, I, I'm currently in Jordan, and Palestinian refugees have 
you know, have have contributed to the to these um, societies over the years. But people, you know, particularly in a place like Gaza, I think. I mean, from what you know, and this is personal, uh, you know, personal friends that I have have have, you know, such such a passion for life, and they have such a firm belief that tomorrow is going to be better. One of my colleagues left Gaza or traveled out of Gaza for the first time last year, and he was 30-something. And, yeah, I mean, you could, you could see it. You could, you could see that, you know, these, these people have been under siege. They have, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say have got used to life under siege. No one can, can get used to that, but they have coped very well. They are very um, resourceful people. My colleagues have already learned how to um, construct tents, even though they've, they've never probably used a hammer in their in their life or, you know, have, have never tried something of that complexity. And now they are building tents and they have had to learn that in within just, you know, one week, um, you know, because they had no other choice. Someone, you know, has already learned how to construct bathrooms even Um you know, construction construction skills now uh, that they have, and I think I think it's I think when you have lived so long under something that is so limiting, you only have faith and talent and probably education that you could rely on for for a better tomorrow. And you know, these are highly educated people in, in Gaza, they have, you know, they have gone to schools, universities, which have, by, by the way, been bombed again by Israel. Um, and, you know, there's, there's hardly a, a family where, you know, there's, there's a child who has quit school. Now we worry about that. We worry about that resilience. We worry about that survival, you know, instinct in, in, in people to, to, to stay alive and and really, you know, resist all forms of, you know, deprivation. Now these children will grow up without their schools, without universities that have been bombed. And oh, without parents in the first place. A lot of them are yeah. orphans. Oh, no, of course. I mean, yeah, that is, that is you know, um, a, 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 an entirely, you know, heartbreaking story on its own. And even, even children without friends, and we know children cope cope better with, with difficulties with friends, without siblings, without limbs, without, you know, with their body missing, you know, um, a leg or, or an arm. But we do believe that, you know, these people can can come back, can can recover, can get up on their, on their feet again, but they can't do that without, I have to say, the, the, the support of, without the weight of, of, the, of the entire world behind them, because this is not something we have seen for decades, I would say. And remember, World War Two. It took, I mean, you know, the, the entire globe really to to make to make that kind of recovery. And now, two million people, you know, have lost everything. And you know, we need to give them every support possible. Hopefully, when we have a, a lasting ceasefire in place. Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, that. Uh, aid um, uh, is coming in from the rougher border. Trucks are coming in from the rougher border, but 
uh, they a lot of them are actually um, uh, used up or uh, even um, uh, you know uh, looted um, uh, because there is a lack of water now um, uh, because of lack of food over there in the south of the region. How is aid and what sort of aid is reaching? central Gaza, and what is the situation of the refugees there? Central Gaza, very little. I mean, if, if any, really. Um, like I said, we, we can, I mean, aid agencies can, can hardly now you know, make it past Rafah. Hmm. Uh, okay. Let alone... So we don't even know central what's Gaza going on over there. there. Yeah. Very, we, we have very little. I mean, in northern Gaza, we're, we're totally disconnected. You know, we have been disconnected all this time. Now in in central Gaza, it's it's. I, I I've heard that northern and central Gaza are the two worst um, affected areas in terms of a de- deprived areas. Um. So and and it's not. I mean, of course, it's it's a life risking mission to 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 drive up to central Gaza with all the you know with bombardment from land, sea, and the air. Um. So I would say that. Um, it's a disaster zone in in central Gaza. There's hardly any aid coming coming through, and people have to rely on. Uh, I've heard they have to uh, cook tree leaves and and you know boil tree leaves and and you know some of them have to drink salty water and a lot of people are already consuming salty water, which is very harmful. Um, so I want to say here that the day after. And that can't come soon enough. The day after, we are looking at a manifold health, mental health, physical health mm. disaster uh, crisis for for the people of Gaza. And you know, some of these diseases, illnesses, you're not going to see on screen, but you will hear about once. Hopefully, hopefully, hospitals have been equipped again, and you know, we have. The full picture, but we do predict, um, you know, a very, a very um, massive, uh, p- particularly massive crisis in the in the coming, I would say, months um, in Gaza. You say that, but at the moment, I guess the the only hope and uh, and and prayer is that uh, that day after arrives sooner rather than later, because um, that's the only hope at the moment that there's at least some semblance of peace in the region, so that. Aid can begin to um, to trickle into all parts of the uh, of the Gaza Strip, and other operations like hospital and you know there's some sort of normalcy um, actually resumes. Uh, but you're right; there will be, I think, yeah. This uh, this is uh, a crisis. I mean, this is a war which is probably going to be the effects of which is going to be felt for decades. Um, there will be many orphan children. There will be, uh, you know, many. Yeah. Um, uh, many women left alone. Uh, there will be a, a huge mental health crisis, not to mention other things. What do you have a sense of what's um, uh, happening at the moment in terms of the spread of disease in uh, the south of Gaza? Uh, yes, um, I mean winter has officially set in now, and what we see already a, a breakout of uh, winter-related diseases, so cold, chest infections, um, you know, infections in in general, which you know we know you know from experience are um, going to spread 
very quickly and rapidly, particularly in overcrowded shelters. The other, the other issue is skin problems, and a lot of children are suffering from, from skin infections. That is because of lack of hygiene, lack of showers, lack of clean water to wash. Um, there are issues uh, related to waterborne diseases already and, you know, all sorts of digestive issues that are, um, you know, uh, again, breaking out in the, in the population, um, particularly um, related to just consuming, of course, uh, you know, unsafe water. The, um, all of this, by the way, most of it will go untreated because someone, you know, a, a paramedic or a doctor or whoever it is, a nurse, is busy saving a life. Um, you know, so you won't manage to get hold of medication. You won't manage to, of course, have your child treated for what is seen as, as less of a priority given the, given the mm-hmm. situation and given the collapse of the health system. So, yes, we do, we do see a, um, an outbreak in, in skin um, colds related, winter related, and and waterborne um, diseases in in these areas. Ahmed Baram, thank you so very much for joining us this morning. Uh, this was very informative. Uh, all the best with all the great work that you and your organization is doing. Uh, our thoughts and prayers are with you. Um, uh, all the very best, and may peace be with you. Thank you, thank you so much, and please keep talking about those. Uh, you know, we can only raise our voices and hopefully these people will have a ceasefire that, that can help them recover eventually. Inshallah, God willing. Absolutely. Thank you very much, brother. Thank you for joining us again. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. As-salamu alaykum. May peace be with you. So that was Ahmed Bayram, who is a media and communications advisor at the Norwegian Refugee Council, where he works closely with 50 Gazans to combat the atrocities of the war in Palestine um, at the moment he was talking to us and painting us a picture of what's uh, currently going on in Gaza, both in the northern and the southern parts of the Gaza Strip. Right, we are now coming up to the 8 o'clock news um, and when we come back from the news we will continue our discussion on this topic, on the topic of uh, this humanitarian zone. Do stay tuned, we will be back after the news break. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum wa May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. We are talking this morning about the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, and we were, before we went on to the news break, 
talking to um, uh, a refugee uh, agency uh, communications, media and communications advisor, Ahmed Bayram, the who works for the Norwegian Refugee Council, uh, who was painting us a picture of uh, what's actually going on in Gaza. Um, the UN um, Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, uh, held a press conference a couple of days ago to talk about this humanitarian crisis in Gaza at the moment. Let's listen in to what he had to say. In the north, they are barely operational. One colleague described the deathly silence of a hospital with no medication or treatment for its sick and injured patients. According to the World Food Programme, widespread famine looms. More than half a million people, a quarter of the population, are facing what experts classify as catastrophic levels of hunger. Four out of five of the angriest people anywhere in the world are in Gaza. And clean water is at a trickle. UNICEF found that displaced children in the South have access to just 10% of the water they need. In these desperate conditions, it is little wonder that many people cannot wait for humanitarian distributions and are grabbing whatever they can from aid trucks. As I warned, public order is at risk of breaking down. Humanitarian veterans who have served in war zones and disasters around the world, people who have seen everything, tell me they have seen nothing like what they see today in Gaza. Israel began its military operation in response to the horrific terror attacks launched by Hamas on 7 October. And nothing can possibly justify those attacks or the brutal abduction of some 250 hostages. And I repeat my call for all remaining hostages to be released immediately and unconditionally. And nothing can justify the continued fire of rockets from Gaza at civilian targets in Israel or the use of civilians as human shields. But at the same time, these violations of international humanitarian law can never justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people and they do not free Israel from its own obligations under international law. Ladies and gentlemen of the press, many people are measuring the effectiveness of the humanitarian operation in Gaza based on the number of trucks from the Egyptian Red Crescent, the UN, and other partners that are allowed to unload aid across the border. This is a mistake. The real problem is that the way Israel is conducting this offensive is creating massive obstacles to the distribution of humanitarian aid inside Gaza. An effective aid operation in Gaza requires security, staff who can work in safety, logistical capacity, and the resumption of commercial activity. These four elements do not exist. First, security. We are providing aid in a war zone. The intense Israeli bombardment and active combat in densely populated urban areas throughout Gaza threaten the lives of civilians and humanitarian aid workers alike. 
We waited 71 days for Israel finally to allow aid to enter Gaza via the Kerem Shalom crossing. And the crossing was then hit while eight trucks were in the area. Second, the humanitarian operation requires staff who can live and work in safety. 136 of our colleagues in Gaza have been killed in 75 days, something we have never seen in the history of the United Nations. Nowhere is safe in Gaza. I honor the women and men who have made the ultimate sacrifice and I pay tribute to the thousands of humanitarian aid workers who are risking their health and lives in Gaza even as I speak. Most of our staff have been forced from their homes. All of them spend hours each day simply struggling to survive and to support their families. It is a miracle that they have been able to continue working under these conditions. And yet, those same colleagues are expanding humanitarian operations in southern Gaza to support people living there, while trying to assist the flood of displaced people who arrive from the north with nothing. And they are currently providing aid in Rafa, Western Canyonis, Deir El Bela, and Nuzerat in the south, and doing their best to reach the north despite huge challenges, namely security. In these appalling conditions, they can only meet a fraction of the needs. Third, logistics. Every truck that arrives at Karem Shalom and Rafa must be unloaded and its cargo reloaded for distribution across Gaza. We ourselves have a limited and insufficient number of trucks available for these. Many of our vehicles and trucks were destroyed or left behind, following our forced hurried evacuation from the north. But the Israeli authorities have not allowed any additional trucks to operate in Gaza. And this is massively hampering the aid operation. And delivering in the north is extremely dangerous due to active conflict, unexploded ordnance, and heavily damaged roads. Everywhere, Frequent communication blackouts make it virtually impossible to coordinate the distribution of aid and to let people know how to access it. And fourth and finally, the resumption of commercial activities is essential. Shelves are empty, wallets are empty, stomachs are empty, just when bakeries operating in the whole of Gaza. And I urge the Israeli authorities to lift restrictions on commercial activity immediately. We are ready to scale up our cash grant support to vulnerable families, the most effective form of humanitarian aid. But in Gaza, there is very little to buy. So, ladies and gentlemen of the media, in the circumstances I've just described, a humanitarian ceasefire is the only way to begin to meet the desperate needs of people in Gaza and end their ongoing nightmare. I hope that today's Security Council resolution may help that finally to happen, but much more is needed immediately. Looking at the longer term, I'm extremely disappointed by comment by senior Israeli officials that put the two-state solution into question. As difficult as it might appear today, 
the two-state solution in line with UN resolutions, international law and previous agreements is the only path to sustainable peace. Any suggestion otherwise denies human rights, dignity and hope to the Palestinian people, fueling rage that reverberates far beyond Gaza. It also denies a safe future for Israel. The spillover is already happening. The occupied West Bank is at boiling point. Daily exchanges of fire across the blue line between Lebanon and Israel pose a grave risk to regional stability. Attacks and threats to shipping on the Red Sea by the Houthis in Yemen are impacting shipping with the potential to affect the global supply chains. And beyond the immediate region, the conflict is polarizing communities, feeding hate speech and fueling extremism. All this poses a significant and growing threat to global peace and security. As the conflict intensifies and the horror grows, we will continue to do our part. We will not give up. But at the same time, it is imperative that the international communities speak with one voice for peace, for the protection of civilians, for an end to suffering, and for a commitment to the two-state solution backed with action. So that was the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres speaking um, at Bressa recently and underscoring the need of an immediate ceasefire as well as the um, uh, importance of reaching, of having uh, the, um, reiterating the importance of the two-state solution. Right. Um, let me now uh, play a clip from the uh, 2017 National Peace Symposium, um, the, um, from the address given by His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, may Allah be his helper. Um, and during that address, he actually talked about uh, the dangers of uh, escalation and, and, and dangers of war and, um, and and strife all over the world. Let's listen into what he had to say. Whilst the primary interest of every nation should be the well-being of mankind and achieving peace, it is a sad truth that business interests and the pursuit of wealth invariably take priority over such concerns. Reflecting this narrow self-interest a well-known well -known CNN host recently said that curbing the arms trade could result in a loss of jobs amongst American defense companies. During a live interview, he said, there's a lot of jobs at stake. Certainly, if a lot of these defense contractors stop selling warplanes, other sophisticated equipment to Saudi Arabia, there's going to be a significant loss of jobs of revenue here in the United States. Furthermore, it is sometimes argued that the sale of weapons may actually encourage peace as weapon can act as a deterrent. In my opinion, this view is completely senseless and only encourages the further production and sale of extremely dangerous weapons. Indeed, it is such justification that have caused the world to become embroiled in a never-ending arms race. 
for the sake of the good of mankind. Governments should disregard fears that their economies will suffer if the arms trade is curbed. Instead, they should think about the type world of uh, world they, they wish to bequeath to those that follow them. Many of the weapons being used in Muslim countries and even by terrorist groups such as Daesh have been produced in the West or Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe and so it, it is time for proper sanctions to be put in place which are effectively implemented. If this one step is taken, I sincerely believe it can have a very significant impact in a short frame of time. <clears throat> Otherwise, the, the alternative does not bear thinking about. I do not need to elaborate because the articles I have cited speak for themselves and point in the direction of another large-scale war. No country or group should be under illusion that they are safe because when wars start, they evolve rapidly and often unexpectedly. If we look back to the Second World War, there were nations who were determined not to take part but were eventually dragged into it whilst alliances and blocs continued to shift and change. Today, several countries have acquired nuclear weapons and if even just one such weapon is ever used, the consequences will be unimaginable and will live on, live on long after we are gone, rather than leaving behind a legacy of prosperity for our coming generations, we will be guilty of leaving behind only sorrow and despair. Our gift to the world will be a generation of disabled children born with defects and intellectual disabilities. Who knows if their parents will even survive to care and nurture them. Hence, we must always remember that if we seek to pursue our own interests at all costs, the rights of others will be usurped. And this can only lead to conflict, wars, and misery. We must all reflect and understand the, the precipice of, upon which we stand. We must recognize the purpose of our creation. As I said at the beginning, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, peace be upon him, came to forge a bond between man and his creator and to unite mankind. And so from the depth of my heart, I pray that the world comes to its senses before it is too late. My message to the world is to look at tomorrow and not just today. Let us leave behind a legacy of hope and opportunity for our children rather than burdening them with the horrific consequences of our sins. With these words, I pray that God grant sense to the people of the world and that the heavy clouds that loom above us give way to a bright and prosperous future. May Allah have mercy upon mankind. Amen. Amin, Swamin. Um, that was His Holiness Hazrat Mizza Masroor Ahmed um, really giving a stark warning uh, to the world about um, 
uh, the way things are at the moment in the world and unless mm, the world leaders change course and we all change course unfortunately um, we are all the, the future doesn't seem to be uh, very bright and uh, this was back in 2017 and after that we've uh, actually seen two wars um, which have broken out and which do um, seem to have disturbed the global balance of power uh, as well as the stability of the world, uh, the Russia-Ukraine war and now uh, the war in the Middle East uh, uh, between Israel and uh, uh, the Palestinian people. So um, these were um, very stark words um, and these words were uh, were uh, said by the head of the um, the current head of the Ahmadi um, Muslim community, Hazrat Mr. Masroor Ahmed. May Allah strengthen his hand. And with those uh, words, we will conclude this segment uh, in which we were talking about the humanitarian um, efforts in Gaza, whatever limited efforts there are, the current situation there. And uh, we've spoken to somebody who's uh, been actively working in that region as well. If you haven't had a chance to listen to this part of the show, you can always go into SoundCloud and listen to the recording. We shall now take a very quick break. And when we come back, we will delve right into the second topic of the morning, which is about the importance of family time and the time for giving. Do stay tuned. Referring to the protector, one who is a guardian, Al-Muhaymin is the one who stands as a witness for his chosen ones and the one who provides security. This benevolent attribute of God is most visible through his protection of his loved ones. The entire life of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is a testament to the attribute of Al-Muhaymin. During the Battle of Uhud, there came a time where the enemy had surrounded the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. The Muslims, exhausted, had scattered about the field, leaving the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, alone and exposed. But it was Al-Muhaymin who stood in his defense. It was he who caused the Muslims to assemble and form a ring around the Prophet, peace be upon him. He gave them the strength to fight until they themselves were pierced by the swords of the enemy. He was the reason the Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had been facing certain death, but through the protection granted by Al-Muhaymin, our beloved Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was able to survive. This is just one of many incidents where the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him's life was safeguarded through divine protection. 
one of the most devoted followers of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was the promised Messiah on whom be peace. Hazrat Mirza Bashir Ahmad, may God be pleased with him, wrote that God himself was the guardian of the promised Messiah. He was the reason why Talha, may God be pleased with him, could absorb arrow after arrow. The Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had been facing certain death, but through the protection granted by Al-Muhaymin, our beloved Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was able to survive. This is just one of the many incidents where the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him's life, was safeguarded through divine protection. The promised Messiah on whom be peace was skilled in swimming and horseback riding. On one occasion, he was swimming and nearly drowned. He was saved by an older man whom he had never seen prior to this incident and never saw again. On another instance, he was riding a horse that became uncontrollable so much so that it crashed into a tree. This proved to be fatal for the horse. But the promised Messiah on whom be peace was miraculously saved without any injury. These are not mere coincidences, nor good luck. This is the work of Al-Muhaymin. How else would the promised Messiah on whom be peace be saved by a man who vanished into thin air or be saved in an accident that killed a mighty animal. The same protection that was afforded to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and the promised Messiah on whom be peace, is granted to all believers. Al-Muhaymin is the one who protects against the severe and subtle attacks of Satan. He guards against accidental and intentional injury. He stands witness for the truthful and provides security to those without a voice. It is the way of God to protect His believers, to become benefactors of the protection of Al-Muhaymin. It is incumbent to accept the Imam of the time. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. We're now talking about the second topic, which is about giving and spending some quality time with the family. So as Christmas approaches and the days actually get colder, the time spent with loved ones increases. The online shopping site Very conducted a survey regarding the most magical moments of Christmas. The number one rank was taken by spending time with the family. Furthermore, this is also the time for giving, where people are urged to give more charity. Assistant Psychiatry Professor Amy Lopez suggests that embracing giving rather, embracing giving rather than receiving this season to combat the pressure of the winter holidays. The reason behind this suggestion is that humans are more likely to feel better through through kind acts such as giving a gift and other charitable behaviors.
In, um, to talk about more of the efforts of the Ahmadi Muslim community in um, this regard, in terms of giving, uh, Ahmadi Muslim community has a charity organization called Humanity First, which is involved globally, not only uh, with disaster relief, but also with many other projects, such as Water for Life, um, providing cataract operations, um, setting up hospitals um, in Africa, uh, and, and and many other initiatives as well. His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad um, gave a keynote address at one of their um, symposiums. Let's listen in to what he said. Repeatedly, the Holy Quran has instructed Muslims to help and aid those who are vulnerable or in need, irrespective of their caste, creed, or color. Furthermore, there are countless traditions and sayings of the Holy Prophet ﷺ that illustrate how, the spend, uh, how he spent his entire life serving mankind and striving to inculcate the same spirit of sympathy for others within his followers. Certainly, the Holy Prophet ﷺ was an everlasting source of mercy for mankind. And through his blessed, uh, blessed words and deeds, He shown an illuminating and everlasting light upon the magnificent teachings of Islam and demonstrated that serving mankind is an inherited and truly fundamental part of our faith. For example, Islam instructs us to protect, uh, to protect and support orphans, to help those who are traveling, to provide for the needy and underprivileged, and to care for those who are suffering from ill health. Also, Islam teaches that one's neighbors have great rights upon them. Muslims have been taught that they must treat their neighbors with grace and compassion and be ever ready to help them in their times of need and grief. In one well-known tradition, the Holy Prophet said that the angel Jibreel had so strongly emphasized fulfilling the rights of one's neighbors and treating them with love and sympathy that he came to think that perhaps they may be in, included amongst the amongst the Muslims' <coughs> rightful heirs. Furthermore, the definition of a neighbor in Islam is extremely vast and far-reaching. It not only includes people who live nearby, but also includes people who live much further afield. A person's travel companions, work colleagues, subordinates, and many others besides.
In reality, the scope of one's neighbors in Islam is so vast that all members of society can be considered our neighbor. And so, striving to help all members of society to overcome their pain and anguish is the religious duty of an Ahmadi Muslim. With the grace of Allah, the, uh, through the work of Humanity First, many Ahmadis have had the chance to serve their neighbors and fulfill their needs, including those who are nearby and also those who live much further afield in other nations and continents. Moreover, Allah the Almighty and His Messenger وسلم, have instructed Muslims to seek to alleviate the pain of those who are suffering from ill health, to provide them with medical treatment, to tenderly care for them and to regularly inquire after their health. In this regard, the Holy Prophet said, Whosoever visits a sick person for the sake of Allah, a heavenly caller will announce, May your every step be blessed and may you be rewarded with an abode in paradise. Not only has the Holy Prophet وسلم, instructed Muslims to provide relief and treatment to those who are unwell, but he has also given the glad tidings that those who make heartfelt efforts to care for the sick will be rewarded in the hereafter. Consequently, those who spend out of what Allah the Almighty has provided them to build hospitals and clinics or to provide health care are those who are actually building their homes in paradise. In light of these Islamic teachings, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has built many hospitals and schools in different countries. However, where it is not possible for us to directly build such facilities due to the religious opposition we face in some countries, Humanity First has provided an excellent avenue for us to fulfill our obligations and our ardent desire to serve others. Likewise, the Holy Quran states that those who protect and feed orphans are those who gain the nearness of Allah, whilst those who ignore their needs are those who become the recipient of His wrath. The Holy Prophet also repeatedly emphasized the importance of caring for orphans and supporting all weak and vulnerable members of society. Indeed, it is reported that the Holy Prophet once said, Find me amongst the weak and poor. Surely you are provided for and helped only due to your support of the weak and deprived.
Here the Holy Prophet proclaims that he stands shoulder to shoulder with those who are weak and defenseless and that if a person desires to attain his love and the love of Allah, he should seek to help those who are helpless and who are the victims of misfortune. Unquestionably, the blessed and noble teachings and practice of the Holy Prophet stand as a timeless example for the Muslim community and the world at large. It was his way to care for those who were weak, deprived or who had lost their parents or guardians at a young age and he desired the same from the followers. Thus, never let any opportunity to serve those who are mired in poverty or subjected to hard, uh, hardship slip through your fingers and never, God forbid, allow even a trace of pride to enter your mind thinking that you are doing such people a favor. Rather, it is they who are doing you a favor because they are providing you with an opportunity to gain the pleasure of God and to reap his blessings in both this world and the next. So that was His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmad underscoring the importance of helping the needy, helping those um, who really need our help, uh, and the importance of that um, in Islam, uh, as well as some of the efforts of the charitable arm of the Ahmadi Muslim community, Humanity, Humanity First, to uh, make endeavors in that direction. Um, moving on to the um, the second part of uh, uh, this topic, which is about spending time with the family. Uh, according to the University of uh, the People's article, the importance of family time during the holidays holds significant value. Family time is where we build trust and deep deep connection. It's like a safe place where we don't need to search for emotional security anywhere else. When we're with the family, we can talk freely. It helps us to stay clear of things we shouldn't get into and give us the space to share what's on our minds without fear of judgment. It mentions that we should consider our parents and old siblings as guides in our life because they act like a compass by giving us direction to navigate through life's twists and turns. Their insights helps us distinguish right from wrong, especially as they say that age makes people wiser. We should also express our love um, to feel the love. According to this, love is found in actions like hugs, holding hands, and meaningful, meaningful conversations. This is important, especially for parents aiming to support their teenagers. When teenagers feel loved at home, it goes beyond a warm and fuzzy feeling because it positively influences their academic performance and boosts their self-esteem. Research suggests that giving, having a sense of love and support with the family dynamic significantly contributes to teenagers thriving both academically and emotionally. So parents and carers actively showing love can make a substantial difference in their teenagers' well-being and success. 
Let's now go um, to our um, guest for this segment, who is Mr. Arif Ahmed, who is a volunteer and charity worker who has been involved with the Humanity First Bank in Murfield since it was set up in June 2020. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Thank you for joining us. Wa alaikum salam. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, so tell us a little bit about this uh, food bank, Humanity First Food Bank. When did it begin? Um, so June 2020, which was the middle of the pandemic, obviously things were very difficult for lots of people. Um, and Humanity First um, wanted to have a food bank for many years. But obviously during the pandemic, it was critical that they needed a food bank. And so it was decided to set up that food bank in Murfield in West Yorkshire. This was the first Humanity First UK food bank. Um, and I was very honoured and pleased to be involved with uh, helping set that up uh, in June 2020. And it not only just helps local people, um, it helps people throughout the Kirklees, West Yorkshire area, uh, which is quite a big area. And as you probably remember, during the pandemic, many people were struggling for help. Um, and our help has continued from then until this present day. Right. So what kind of support do you provide to the local community through this? Um, it's different supports. So obviously, a food bank, the main support that we provide is for people and families who need help with their food. Um, and we will provide either emergency risk relief or ongoing relief for families and individuals. But we also help... Um, give them guidance and signpost them to other support that they might be able to get. So, for example, if some people are not sure what benefits they should be claiming, we, although we don't fill in the application form for them, we can tell them where they can get help, where they can get assistance. Um, some of the users, unfortunately, are people who are homeless. Uh, again, we can point them in the right direction as to where they can get help and support. So the food bank becomes sort of like a hub helping people who need help, who uh, are in difficulty, who need short-term help such as food, but also they need some help getting themselves back into society or to get some um, benefits or housing uh, to help their situation. But the prime prime objective of the food bank is to provide uh, relief, food and provisions to those individuals and families who can't afford um, to meet their bills. And this is open to anybody and everybody uh, can just walk in uh, or how does it work? Um, people do walk in. Uh, ideally, we prefer that people are referred to the food bank from other uh, charities, other agencies, from their GP, from their uh, local councillor. But yes, sometimes if somebody doesn't know what to do and they walk in, of course, we will try and help them. And it is open to everybody. Of course, we're all volunteers, so there is a limit in how far uh, we can help people uh, and how many hours uh, we can stay open but whenever we are open uh, we're busy we're helping people we will actually deliver food parcels to those individuals who uh, can't make it to the food bank and that happens every week but other than that people will actually come and collect their own food parcels and we will give emergency relief to somebody who just walks into the food bank as well in terms of the management of this food bank, what are your major challenges? Um, it's a very good question. I mean, one of the major challenges in the beginning was having enough volunteers on a regular basis because this food bank is running 
continuously for the last three years. That means you need volunteers who are coming regularly. Um, it's great if a volunteer wants to come for a few days. That's fantastic. But we need volunteers who understand how the food bank works and who can come every week, whether it's one day a week or two days a week. That's entirely up to them. So I would say getting volunteers on a regular basis was one of the biggest challenges. Um, one of the other challenges was getting the right premises, uh, which by the grace of God we managed to get. Um, and I think the other biggest challenge is obviously making sure that we have enough food coming into the food bank to meet the demand. There's no point in having a food bank and lots of people who need food if you don't have enough food coming in. So we're always working with um, individuals, charities, other supermarkets to make sure that we have a constant supply of food coming into the food bank. Because if we run out of provisions, and obviously we're not able to help anyone, so I think these are the biggest challenges that we face from the beginning um, and that we're still facing. So how would you like to, um, what, what is the strategy to meet some of these challenges? For example, to meet uh, uh, the, the demand of the, uh, for food stuff. How do you, um, how do you raise awareness? Uh, I think it's a very good point. It is about raising awareness and that can be done through social media. But one of the things which I'm particularly tasked with is, is, is asking people to come and visit the food bank. Um, if you're in a fortunate position where you don't need to go to a food bank, that's great. But I think um, you should try and visit your local food bank just to understand how it works and to see how difficult it can be for many, many people. So when I invite people to a food bank, I'm not saying to them, you must come to the food bank and you must bring some food with you and you must help us. I just want them to be aware of how it works. And through that, um, and through working with local colleges, local charities, local politicians, and just individuals, what we find is, is that, you know, they tell their uh, network of contacts, uh, and through that we get a regular supply of donations. I don't want to keep going back to the same people and asking them for donations. We want as many people as possible to know about the food bank. And if they feel that they're able to help, then they do help. So, for example, the local college, once a year, the children there will arrange a collection and they will donate to us. And that's great. But we need more people like them, wherever they might be, to, uh, to come and visit us, to understand what we're doing, uh, to tell their friends uh, and to make donations. And we're finding that more and more people are sympathetic to the work that we're doing. And they're very, very happy to donate, whether it's a one-off donation or whether it's regular donations. We're grateful for any of those because um, we need uh, as many donations as possible to keep going. Are you the only food bank in the area or are there others as well? <clears throat> um, in the particular town of Murfield, uh, there's just one main food bank, which is us. Mm -hmm. There is also the Salvation Army, which does do food parcels. Um, but yes, in that particular town, we are. Um, the main food bank. And um, this obviously is run by Humanity First, which is a charitable arm of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Uh, you mentioned this college, which uh, regu regularly donates, but you do you find or are you finding that more and people uh, outside the community are also actually donating to the food bank? Um, I would say so, yes, absolutely. You know, so people from uh, the local church, which is next door, they regularly collect for us. Right. There was a local monastery. They they made a collection for us. 
sometimes we don't even know where these collections are coming from. I think they're just aware of what we're doing. Mm. And I would say that actually the majority of the donations and the majority of the volunteers um, are from people who are outside the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Um, and that's very gratifying to know. Yes. Uh, but by the same token, the majority of people who we are helping in terms mm. of giving relief are also from outside the community as right. well. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us this morning, um, Star FM. Uh, uh, really wish you all the very best with uh, all the great work you're doing. May peace be with you. Thank you very much. So that was Mr. Arif Ahmed, who is a volunteer and charity worker uh, involved with the Humanity First uh, Food Bank in Murfield since it was set up in 2020. And uh, as he mentioned, this food bank is actually um, helped by, uh, although it is managed by uh, the Muslim community, it is uh, the donations come from uh, mostly from outside the community and also the people who are actually getting help are, are people from outside the community um, as well and people from any race, background, creed um, uh, or color. Right. Um, uh, before we uh, uh, began to talk to Mr. Arif Ahmed, we were talking about uh, the importance of uh, spending time with the family and how important it is to uh, spend that time. Uh, let's listen in now to um, a short clip from a program called Beacon of Truth, uh, in which this very important aspect of um, family family time and spending time with the loved ones is discussed. Let's listen in. The Quran, the Hadith, they're full of uh, teachings about giving respect to parents. For instance, the Quran, uh, in the Quran, Allah says, insana husna." That we have enjoined on man with, with emphasis to be kind to his parents. Uh, and there's so many Hadiths, uh, you've already quoted one where uh, the background is that uh, at one point the Holy Prophet kept saying, let him be humbled, let him be humbled. Let him be humbled. And the companions became a little bit concerned. And they asked uh, Huzur, uh, who are you referring to? And the Holy Prophet said that he who finds his parents, one or both of them, and does not enter paradise uh, is the one who I'm referring to. And so he was, trying, he, he was saying that, uh, you know, if you have parents and you find them in old age and you still don't serve them, uh, then it's unfortunate that you have not entered paradise. And in a similar hadith, he says, paradise lies under the feet of the mother. So again, that, that symbolism is used to explain that you should serve your mother. And if you're, if you're serving your mother, then you will uh, enter paradise. And, you know, in, 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 in another way, in another hadith, he tries to explain or he explains through uh, the reciprocity aspect of it. He says that a person, a young person, who gives respect to an elder person, Allah will appoint someone to respect him when he is older. So if you are respectful of the older people and you're caring of the older people, then Allah will ensure that someone is out there for you when you get old. So there are so many ways in which we are being taught that we should be respectful and caring of the elderly and especially our parents. Right, and uh, Hafiz Saab, here in Canada, there's an aging population. 
Uh, in fact, in many of the Western societies, the population is, is aging very quickly. And in fact, the people who are there to take care of them uh, are not able to because there's just not enough support for them. And obviously, you know, when people get older, they have other needs, special needs. And perhaps moving them into retirement homes becomes a, a, a feasible option. But how is that experience for, for most people? Firstly, I must agree with you and affirm that there are a lot of people living in these elderly retirement homes. Currently, some reports suggest that there are 900 million people living in these facilities. And by the year 2050, there will be over 2 billion people that are in elderly retirement homes. You know, there's no, it's not a black and white issue. There's no fatwa or prohibition that we can't have our parents living in, in these facilities. But I just want to share some information regarding uh, elderly retirement homes, as we have probably seen in many news articles and reports, that there have been lots of issues concerning these facilities. So one very thorough study was published by the World Health Organization that was conducted over a 13-year period in 28 different countries. And they concluded that 64% of the residents living in those elderly retirement homes received some form of abuse. What kind of abuse? financial abuse, psychological, physical, you know, just generally neglect in care. Sometimes their clothes weren't changed for hours. Sometimes, um, actually, even their clothes weren't changed for days. They weren't allowed to use the washroom for, you know, for a very lengthy period of time. Uh, very inhumane things. And uh, what happens is the near relatives or the family members, when they visited or when they meet their elder parents staying in these facilities, they naturally say, oh, you know, they are getting older, so they have some, maybe they have some psychological issue, maybe they have some uh, weakness in them, they're they are getting thinner, and they just see it a natural process of aging. Whereas, in fact, they have actually gone through some severe abuse. And the experts of this study, uh, doctors, they concluded that 80 to 90% of the people that had received some kind of abuse, they did not reach the full potential of their lives. Their lives were actually shortened simply because of this abuse, you know? So these are staggering numbers that we must take into consideration, you know? Um, according to the teaching of Islam as presented by Farhan Saab, we must keep in mind the great respect and the great uh, way that we should treat our parents in, uh, in their, the latter part of their life. And we must ensure that we make such accommodations with them that they live a comfortable and happy part of their life. Right, that was a clip uh, from the program Beacon of Truth talking about the importance in Islam of uh, uh, relations within family um, and um, um, the importance of taking care of your uh, loved ones as well. That brings us towards the end of today's program. I must thank uh, our producer, uh, Sima Brahman, um, as well as Aksarana and Shanza Mubarak. Researcher Saira Ahmed, Salah Siddiqui, Badia Mubarak. Excellent support as always uh, from the tech room from Mr. Akib. And of course, our listeners uh, who listened in and contributed to this show as well. Please, please do join us tomorrow for another live show from 7 a.m. in the morning. And the topics that we shall discuss will be disease and hunger in Gaza, uh, the uh, deportations of Afghans from Pakistan, uh, as well as uh, one in five children and young people aged 8 to 25 having mental health disorders here in the UK in 2023. So those are the three topics that will be talked about tomorrow. So please do join in 
that program uh, and that discussion from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. I shall be back uh, next Monday. Until then, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Have a lovely day. Uh, have a lovely uh, bank holiday. Have a lovely Christmas. And happy holidays. Peace be with you.